0: Good morning. Well, we've been studying the book of Matthew for almost a year now. and I found myself kind of excited last week when Jesus finally arrived in Jerusalem. Wow, we call it the triumphal entry for what would be the final week of Jesus' earthly ministry. The week in which he would change all of history for all eternity. So what does Matthew choose to focus on in that final week of ministry? Well, once again, as he's mentioned so many times already in this book, he talks about the religious leaders getting into arguments with Jesus. It's like those religious leaders just didn't know when to quit. They just didn't know when to concede and admit that Jesus was right. Have you ever found yourself in an argument like that? Where you kind of know you're wrong, but you don't want to admit it, and you just keep arguing anyway, and... uh, go figure. Anybody who's married should be able to relate to that, right? Well, you know, that's happened to me. I remember, I'm going to go back to my early 20s because I want to, I want to pick an illustration that's put some distance between myself and when it happened. So, um, yeah, way back when I used to work at Reimer Express Lines in an office with 13 women and one other guy. And that, that was great, they were great ladies, but if you ever ended up in a situation where someone was going to gang up on you, you know who was going to stick with who. And so anyway, I had heard, I had been talking to a friend who told me that, uh, he had it on good authority, that all pictures of food, all photographs of food in magazines are plastic. That's right, plastic. He said, because of the hot lights and because it takes so much time to set these photos up, they don't want the food to wilt. And and so whenever you see a picture like a flyer of coupons for fast food places or magazines, he said, that's always plastic. I thought, wow, really? And I can't even remember where. Even at the time, I didn't really clearly know where he'd read that or heard that. He wasn't playing a joke. He really believed it. And so I went to the office, and I I decided to announce that to this office full of... It was an open office with no dividers. And I just said, hey, did you know all food photographed in magazines is plastic? Well, you know, you can imagine there was some uh, there was some unbelief in the room and one of the ladies said no way that's just not possible i said yeah it's true even though i had no idea why i believed it i had no i hadn't read anything i hadn't seen anything i just insisted on it and she went after me like for proof and, and of course even though i had no proof i kept arguing my point i kept insisting on something i had no idea about i'm sure some of you have done that and I, I ended up. I think I lost a friend that day. Like she was so mad at me for being so stubborn about something I had nothing to back up my argument with. And uh, I feel really bad now because I don't. I don't even believe it. I don't. I don't. It's, it can't be true. But anyway, in Matthew twenty-two, we find someone else who just can't stop arguing, no matter how much they keep losing. The religious leaders kept confronting Jesus again and again and again one after the other the ongoing clash between jesus and those leaders reached a boiling point as they as jesus arrived in jerusalem because they thought that this man was leading the multitudes astray from their finely tuned religion and of course jesus had his own agenda that week and uh, his own messages to convey as as the multitudes hung on every word he said. So whatever they came at him with in terms of arguing, he would respond, not on their terms, but with his own agenda, with his own message. He stayed on message. So, yeah, today I want to look at two of those messages, two of those focuses that come up in Matthew 22. As Jesus anticipated his own death and resurrection, which he would very soon experience, Jesus responded to these arguments that came upon him by emphasizing two themes before the listening crowds. We can know the power of God and we can live the love of God. I believe these two themes were very present on Jesus' mind and ones that he very intentionally emphasized in the days leading up to when these themes would be very dramatically Demonstrated the power of God and the love of God. So, with that in mind, let's read a part of Matthew 22. I'm going to start in verse 23. We're going to read to verse 40. It'll appear behind me in the English Standard Version. The same day, Sadducees came to him, him who say that there is no resurrection, and they asked him a question, saying, "Teacher, Moses said if a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow." And raise up children for his brother. Now there were seven brothers among us. The first married and died and having no children left his wife to his brother. So too the second wife, or the second and the third down to the seventh. After them all the woman died. In the resurrection therefore of the seven whose wife will she be? For they all had her. But Jesus answered them, You are wrong, because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. And when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Now before we examine that passage, it's worth glancing at the context we just read. The context it just happened in. Already angry... Before Jesus arrived in Jerusalem, they'd been angry with him hearing the reports. The religious leaders were now fuming. Jesus, in the previous chapter, had just overturned the tables in the temple, scattering their coins everywhere where the money changers were, and they would have been furious and then as Matthew chapter 22 begins we find Jesus telling yet another unflattering parable. He'd just been telling parables that put the religious leaders in a bad light, and now he told a parable that put the entire Jewish nation in a bad light. And then we see how the these leaders initially responded. Matthew 22 verses 15 and 16 tells us that the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his words. And they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians. Luke even goes so far as to call those disciples that were sent spies. Verse 23 then says, that same day Sadducees came to him. And then verse 34 says, but when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, They gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked a question to test him. This was quite a collection of foes. All of them bonding together and banding together despite their significant differences. Pharisees, Herodians, Sadducees. These words tend to mean very little to us. We we don't really know a lot about them uh, generally, but they had obvious meaning to Matthew's readers. Matthew would have understood that his readers would have known exactly who he was talking about and what the characteristics of these groups were and how much their character, the character of these kinds of men, contrasted with the character of Jesus. So please allow me to offer some definitions. Pharisees. These were religious purists. Their supreme concern and delight was to keep the law and their lengthy interpretations of it in every exact detail, and to keep themselves separate from those who didn't. Their status came from their learning, and yet because they chose to live simply while pursuing other occupations to provide for themselves, they were more accessible and therefore more popular among the people. Yet their arrogance as experts in theological matters combined with their dry legalism led them to put exact Ritual observance far above love and mercy. The Sadducees, they were the religious rationalists. They based all their convictions on the first five books of the Bible, Genesis to Deuteronomy, and rejected all other Old Testament scriptures. They came largely from the rich aristocratic landowning class, resulting in them being more removed from the common people and therefore having less popular support. Their status came from their class and from using political loyalties to attain status as priests, for they were not averse to cooperating with local Roman rulers. They rejected religious ideas such as the immortality of the spirit, resurrection, or angels. Possibly because such beliefs demonstrated the power of God in ways that challenged their own preoccupation with achieving power through their own status, wealth, and political affiliations. Then the Herodians. This is the smallest group of the three. These were influential Jewish men who were supporters of the Herodian dynasty and therefore. ...of the Roman Empire. Little else is known about them, though they appeared to be more similar to the Sadducees than the Pharisees... ...religiously, economically, and especially politically. These groups typically competed with one another. Competed one another for influence among the people... ...and for influence among the Romans. And yet in this week, between just before Jesus' death and resurrection... Their common hatred of Jesus was enough to bring them together to join forces in this chapter. For the people to have seen Pharisees working cooperatively with Herodians would have been highly unusual. For Pharisees generally kept themselves aloof from those they disagreed with. And they were definitely disagreeing with Herodians because they were on opposite ends of the spectrum in terms of their political views in those days. And to see Sadducees attempt to entrap Jesus followed closely by Pharisees trying to follow it up when the Sadducees didn't succeed it has all the makings of a tag team wrestling match. They were working together to try to trap Jesus. Now why does any of this matter today? I believe that today there are Pharisees and Sadducees and Herodians in our culture. I'm not talking about how much we can identify with different groups in different ways, we'll get to that later. But in our culture, I think, for example, from the self righteous political correctness that permeates our society to the enforced secularism coming from our governments, I believe the church is being aggressively assaulted by groups like these. Jesus found them on the attack in his day. I don't think that attack has ended. When Christians who courteously disagree with others are labeled as hateful and are then confronted with hate by those who disagree with them, we are living among modern-day Pharisees by those politically correct people. And when those who seek to live by biblical convictions that don't line up with political powers are met with hostility from people who are aligned with those political powers, we are living among modern-day Sadducees and Herodians. The devil isn't that creative. The way he attacks God's people is pretty much the same today as it was then. So what will be our response to these confrontations? Well, let's look at Jesus' response. In verses 23 to 33, the Sadducees came to Jesus with a hypothetical scenario that they felt aligned, was aligned with um, Mosaic law, and they wanted to reveal what they felt was the ridiculousness of belief in the resurrection. Because Sadducees, with their rational religiosity, did not believe in the resurrection. So, after telling their story, the Sadducees smugly asked Jesus, in the resurrection of the seven brothers, whose wife shall she be? For they all had her, thinking that they had finally trapped Jesus with a tough question. Well, Jesus answered the Sadducees directly, but he said so much more. He also used the question to reveal their hearts and to express his own heart, to the listening crowds. And responding to their question, Jesus was blunt. He said, "You are wrong." That doesn't get more blunt than that, you know, because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. Jesus then answered their question by how by explaining how in the resurrection our bodies aren't going to be the same and we're not going to be given in marriage the way we are here on earth. And so he made their question completely irrelevant. But then Jesus went beyond answering the specifics of their question, and he decided to attack their rational view of the resurrection and their belief that there isn't one. It was like Jesus was saying, and furthermore, all the people listening knew the Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection. And Jesus knew that he was just days away from the greatest demonstration of resurrection power that the world would ever see. So Jesus said, as for the resurrection, which we know Jesus knew something about, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. That's what the word of God says. Is, he is not the God of the dead, but of the living. Jesus' response was to point them to the word of God in order to prove that resurrection power was real. The Sadducees focused on power, achieving power through wealth and through status and political affiliations. In other words, on what they could see and touch. So God's power ended up being watered down in their world. They were focused on the material world. Now, are we any less vulnerable to this? Here and now. I don't consider myself a Sadducee according to definition of a Sadducee. However, as a Westerner, in a, in a society that's all about rational thought and about, you know, uh, f- things being th- sort of thought through just on a material level and not a society that sort of resists the Christian view of the spiritual world, I can be prone to worldly thinking, just like the Sadducees were because I'm surrounded by what I can see and touch. It's often a distraction. The Sadducees saw power as something to be achieved through worldly connections, through what they could see and touch. But if that becomes our primary focus, we, like the Sadducees, will drift away from the Word of God. We'll drift away from the truth of God. And the power of God will feel increasingly distant. So when I read Jesus' clear and blunt words to the Pharisees, when he said, you are wrong, because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God, I'm sobered by that statement. And I wonder, how much is that true of me? That I know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. And in what specific situations do we need God to ask us the same question he asked the Sadducees? Have you not read what was said to you by God? Perhaps it's fair to say that we all have situations in our lives in which it's a challenge to remain steadfast in our convictions regarding the power of God and regarding what the Word of God says. I don't know if you're like me, but there are situations in my life where sometimes those things, those convictions feel challenged. I've had situations like that in my life for years, and I still do in this present day. And God wants us trusting in his word and in his resurrection power for those very situations. Just the other day, one of those situations was on my mind. I woke up thinking about it. And so I went for a walk. And as I was walking, I felt myself tempted to go down to tubes. I started thinking thoughts about God's faithfulness. I started doubting God's faithfulness. Where are you, God? Why are you not answering? I, I began getting down on myself, thinking I'm, I'm the problem here. This is my fault. I don't have enough faith or something like that. And as I walked... I remembered a Bible verse. A Bible verse came to mind, one that I'd memorized, a simple verse. Many of you may have it memorized too. And, and another one came to mind. And as I replayed that one in my mind and shared it with God, rehearsed it before Him, another one came to mind, and another one. And it was, before long I started feeling encouraged. The first verse that came to mind was Hebrews 11.1. 1. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. I said, "Yeah, God. Yeah, I'm hoping for these things. Would you would you give me the kind of faith that hopes for things that that's that's assured of things that I hope for, that that's convinced of things I can't yet see. Give me that kind of faith." And then another verse came to mind. He, Hebrews 11:6, which you may also know. It says Now, without faith, it's impossible to please Him. For he who comes to God must believe that He is and that He's a rewarder of those who seek Him. And I said, yeah, God, I want that kind of faith. I believe You you exist. Lord, help me to believe You are who You say You are, no matter what the circumstances. Help me to believe that You're a rewarder of those who seek You. I'm seeking You. Lord, I know all Your promises are true for those who seek You. You're a rewarder of those who seek You. And then... Psalm 9:10 came to mind. And Psalm 9:10 says, "And those who know your name put their trust in you, for you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you." I'm seeking you. I know your name. I know your name is faithful. I know your name. It says in the verse, it says, "And those who know your name will put their trust in you, for you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you." That name, Lord, is the name God gave to Moses when he established a covenant with his people. He's a covenant-keeping God. I reminded God of his covenant and of his promise. I says, God, I know you. You don't forsake those who seek you as the faithful covenant-keeping God that you are. And as I rehearsed that, Isaiah 41 said, Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I'm your God. I will strengthen you. I'll help you. I'll uphold you with my righteous right hand. And I thought, yeah, I don't have to fear God is with me. And then Psalm 18, all. Oh, I love you, O oh Lord, my strength. O oh Lord, my rock, my fortress, and my deliverer. My God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold, I call upon the Lord who's worthy to be praised and I'm saved from my enemies. That's what the word of God says. And Psalm 112 says, says um, they are not afraid of bad news. Their hearts are firm, trusting in the Lord. Their hearts are steadfast. They will not be afraid until They will look in triumph on their foes. Wow. So then, the last one that came to mind, I thought Psalm 116 tells me what I need to do. I love the Lord because he has heard my prayer and my plea for mercy. Because he inclined his ear to me, therefore I will call on him as long as I live. I won't stop asking, Lord. And I, I started praying with more faith than I had had before I rehearsed all those verses. I suddenly started praying for that. So I wasn't fretting anymore. I was in faith for that situation. Did I stay there? No. I still had to remind myself of those verses again and again and again. Even now, I've encouraged my soul regarding those situations. I hope you're encouraged I believe it's only by knowing and believing the truths of God's word that we will know the power of God in those situations we're struggling in. We need his word. Focusing primarily on what we can see and touch like the Sadducees did will only dilute our convictions regarding the power of God. I don't want to just focus on those problems. I want to focus on the word of God. I'll glance at the problems and then I'll focus on Jesus, the living word. That's what God asked me. He said, "Have you not read what I've said to you? Have you not read what I said to you? Can you've memorized what I said to you? Why don't you just remember what you memorized and you'll be encouraged." And I did. So I want to encourage you. Spend time in God's word. Read it. Meditate on it. Reflect on it memorize it and remind your soul of it the same way david said why are you in despair o my soul bless the lord o my soul david was regularly speaking to himself let's speak the word of god to our soul we all need the power of god expressed in our lives we all need but before we will know god's power we need to know and believe the truths, and the promises of God's word. So, the next point Jesus wanted to emphasize. In verse 34, Matthew then wrote, the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees. That word silence would be better translated muzzled. He muzzled the Pharisees. He shut their mouths. And I'm sure the Pharisees figured that they'd better have a much better question than what the Sadducees asked because they didn't want to get muzzled as well. And you can just feel the craftiness of the Pharisees when you read how Matthew described it. But when the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the, the Sadducees, they gathered together. You can just see them huddling together. Talking amongst themselves. What should we ask him? Keeping a, a wary eye on Jesus. What are we going to ask him? And then it says, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And once again, Jesus answered the question, but then said so much more. The lawyer, who was a Pharisee, had asked for just one commandment. And Jesus answered by giving him two commandments that he said all the law and the prophets depend on. Jesus' answer is two commands, plural, for what we call the great commandment, singular. We call it the great commandment, but it's actually two commands. And the reason we can take something that's plural and singular is because we need both put together. Let's read it. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart heart With all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now why did he mention two instead of one? I believe it's because you just can't have one without the other. Jesus knew. And he would have wanted the listening crowds to know. That if you separate these two commands. You will be without a source of supply. For love. And without a purpose for that supply of love. God, loving God and that relationship with God is our source of supply for love. So as we love God, he fills us with love. And then the purpose for that love is to love others. They're meant to go together. And if we don't have the source or we, or we don't have the purpose, then it's either a source that goes nowhere Or it's the purpose for which we have no source, no no love to give away because we haven't received anything from God. If both those loves aren't real in our lives, then I would say that neither of them are. The Bible teaches elsewhere that it's not even possible to love God while ignoring my neighbors. It's impossible to love our neighbors as God loves us if we're neglecting our relationship with God. They must coexist in order to be real as well as sustained. The Apostle John wrote, If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. That means that our love for people around us actually authenticates our love for God. It proves we have a love for God because he's filled us with the love we're sharing with others. But John also taught that our love for God births our love for others. He wrote, Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Here John is telling us, love comes from God. If you don't have a loving relationship with God, you're not filled with the kind of love Jesus is talking about. And when Jesus said the law and the prophets depend on these two commandments, meaning all of Scripture depends on them, love God and love your neighbor, he made Christianity a religion of the heart, not just of our mind, of what we believe. It's not enough to just believe the right things. We need a love relationship with God. If you know God the way the devil knows God, then it's just information. It's just information and it doesn't change anything in our lives. But God wants there to be affection in our hearts as well as understanding in our minds. A loving relationship. There's a theologian, a very heady theologian who writes really complicated books called D.A. Carson. And he says that without these two commandments, the Bible is sterile. So as a theologian, he's saying, even as a theologian, I know that My writings need to express the love of God. In fact, our Christian lives become sterile, not just the Bible, but our lives become sterile without these love, these two loves at work. So again, how much do we need to be reminded of this here and now? Jesus was reminding people then. What about now? Now, I might be a little pharisaical sometimes, but I don't consider myself a Pharisee by a strict definition. But I can be prone to pharisaical tendencies. And I cringe at the thought of my life being loveless and sterile. And Jesus' answer to the Pharisees is a thrilling antidote to that possibility. Thrilling because as we grow in each part of the great commandment, it helps us to grow in the other. As we grow in true love for God, It creates in us a love for others. And as we grow in love for others, it it assures us in our love for God. In fact, if you don't believe that this kind of thing is is, is meant to be a reassurance to us, I'm going to just read 1 John 3.16. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our hearts before God. We can reassure our hearts by saying, Hey, look at the love that's being expressed in my life. That must mean I'm receiving love from God or I wouldn't have anything to give. And it's a reassurance to us. And we look here, it says, By this we know that he, love, that he laid down his life for us. Jesus set an amazing example of sacrificial love by laying his life down for us. He laid his life down for the punishment of all our sins so that we could be forgiven and have a life with God. A life that lasts for eternity with God. And 1 John 3 tells us that God calls us to follow in that example. It says, by this we know Love that he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. Jesus is calling us to follow in that example of living that sacrificial love which reassures our hearts before God. Now, God gave me a a really encouraging clue as to how to do this. It was a couple weeks ago. That it happened. And it's been ongoing ever since. I preached a sermon on Matthew 20 two weeks ago. And in that chapter, just before Jesus arrived in Jerusalem, there were two blind men that were begging by the gate who heard that Jesus was passing through Jericho. And when they heard he was passing through, they called out to him. They called out persistently. People were even telling them to be quiet. And, he, and these two blind beggars kept calling until it says, Jesus stopped. And I spoke in my in that sermon about the application, just I gave an application that I, I just encouraged people to be be encouraged yourselves that Jesus will stop for you when you call out persistently. Don't give up. Keep calling. He will stop. He will pay attention. He will hear your prayer. And I ended with that application and ended the sermon and then the service was over and I found myself somewhere down the aisle in a conversation with someone. After, after the service and while I was in that conversation just catching up with someone because they'd been away for a while they were telling me about their trip and suddenly behind me was Derek Block Derek Block is um, uh, he's handicapped in his mind he's Bert Bert brings him his son uh, you may have met Bert, Derek he was behind me and he was calling my name Ken Ken and I thought oh there's Derek calling my name what do I do? Because I'm in the middle of this conversation. This person's in the middle of a sentence telling me about their trip. And the thought went through my mind. Jesus stopped. I thought, well, I'm going to stop. I stopped and I turned to Derek and I asked him how he was. He says, good, good. And he said a few words. And I said, can I pray for you, Derek? Yes, yes. So I prayed for Derek and we had a good time. It was meaningful. I I enjoy praying for Derek. I love Derek. And so that was over. I went home. That afternoon, I get a text from somebody who needed to see me or wanted to see me. They they didn't need to see me. They just wanted to see me. And uh, it wasn't an emergency, but they felt they wanted to see me soon. And I thought, man, I've got such a busy week. And um, I don't know what to do. And suddenly I heard these words, Jesus stopped. I think Jesus wants me to stop for this person. So we got together. And we had a great time. We had a great conversation. Very edifying. And then later that week, I went into Ron McLean's office. And Ron was busy. He was busy working on some project for a trip coming up or something, pre- preparing for something. And he's always busy. And he put down his pen and he swung his chair around and he gave me his full attention. And he he gave me his attention as long as... Until I was ready to leave. And then when I left. I realized. Ron stopped. (laughs) Like. Jesus stopped. Ron stopped. I had been stopping. It was like this was a lesson to me. That in fact it happened more. That wasn't the last time. It kept happening. And I kept hearing these words. Jesus stopped. And I felt like God was on my case. About learning to listen. When he asked me to stop. And that loving others in this passage may I suggest that if we want to follow Jesus' example in expressing the kind of love that he was talking about in the great commandment that we consider stopping more often. Stopping to spend time with God. Stopping to respond to people around us. Why not? Stopping as Jesus prompts us. Jesus was just days away from expressing the greatest act of love on the cross and the greatest act of resurrection power that the world had ever seen. And Jesus' words should cause us to ask ourselves, do we know the scriptures and the power of God? Do we know a love for God That produces a love for those around us. Well, I'm encouraged that the way to grow in both is essentially the same. Stopping. Stopping to spend time in God's word. Stopping to express love to God as we pursue a relationship with him. Stopping for those around us to express the love we've received to those people stopping, and starting with when we stop for God. I know how easy it is to hit the ground running in the morning, but I want to hear God's words. Jesus stopped. He spent time with his Father, so I want to learn to stop. Believe me, God is looking forward to that time with you in prayer and in his word so that we can grow in love and grow in power.